0: Welcome to Just the Truth. A federal judge just found that the Michigan Secretary of State violated election laws when she unilaterally changed election rules in the administration of the 2020 election. This is a vindication for President Trump. As a key member of the Trump legal team during the election integrity effort, I've said from the very beginning that there is more than sufficient evidence to show that in at least six states, the executive branch violated the election laws of their states and that the Democrats were trying to just run out the very short clock between November 3rd and January 20th. That's exactly what happened. And it's a total mockery of our election system, fundamental fairness, and the separation of powers in our U.S. constitutional republic. But this is just one shocking example of how the left is blatantly violating the Constitution. The crisis on the border, the COVID-19 mandates, and many other examples of executive overreach show how both the Democrat Party and the Biden administration are intentionally rejecting the limitations of the executive branch. This is a violation of the rule of law. Article 2 of the U.S. Constitution begins, The executive power shall be vested in a President of the United States of America. But the extent of that executive power has been hotly debated since the Constitutional Convention. The idea of limited government powers is different historically than prerogative. The founders were very familiar with the prerogative of the crown, or the right of the sovereign, which in British common law is theoretically subject to no limitations whatsoever. But in America, in our citizen-led republic, the principle of self-government means that no person in the United States has a right to government power or in other words, sovereign prerogative. We elect our leaders and, through our consent, allow elected officials to exercise the limited powers of government for their term in office and within the limited scope of their role. Even lifetime appointments, like federal judges, are still subject to impeachment and removal. No individual has the prerogative, by birth or conquest, to govern us. The purpose of this design for American government is obvious. We don't want any single individual to have a right to govern. Unlike what other societies believe even today about divine rights of kings, our Founders rejected that idea and instead recognized the truth of human rights. The Declaration of Independence was such a bold statement not just because of the Founders recognition that rights come from God our Creator, but that rights are given to every individual to self-govern. The government itself has no rights at all, only limited powers. This is completely antithetical to the philosophy of government that kings and monarchs have a sovereign right to rule and reign. So this concept of executive prerogative is intentionally absent from the U.S. Constitution because our founders did not want our chief executive to fancy himself a king or think that he has a sovereign right to rule. The idea of a president is very different than a tyrant or a king. This is also why the judicial branch's authority to restrain executive action is so important functionally. Most U.S. presidents and many governors have exercised some sort of overreach, which can rightly be termed executive prerogative. We have to reject this kind of overreach. In America, we separate the powers of government into three coordinate branches, executive, legislative, and judicial. So no branch can exercise another branch's powers or become tyrannical. When a president is trying to use an executive order in place of legislation, he is violating Article 1, Section 1 of the U.S. Constitution, which is the legislative authority. So executive actions and executive orders, two very separate things, must be first evaluated not on the basis of the policy or whether or not we think it's a good idea, but whether or not the power of a president or governor is exercising a legitimate function of the executive branch. One of the main examples we're all familiar with is former President Barack Obama's executive order on DACA, or Deferred Action on Childhood Arrivals. The mainstream media debated this as a policy measure, but largely failed to cover the real issue—that Obama was exercising executive prerogative, and only Congress has legislative authority. Obama's action on DACA followed Congress's refusal to pass legislation to address the immigration issue involved. But the solution is not to use the executive action to legislate and basically fill in for Congress. A president cannot do that constitutionally. That kind of wide-sweeping exercise of executive prerogative undercut what Congress had legislated. Our founders knew that it's never a good precedent to vest so much discretion in a chief executive without a check on that power. When executive prerogative reigns instead of our supreme law of the land, we have substituted our republic for the rule of a tyrant. Just today, the Heritage Foundation published a piece titled, The Left's New Constitution. Mike Gonzalez writes, We have today a new unwritten constitution, a hodgepodge of executive orders, court decisions, legislation, and conventions. Of course, we already have a written constitution drafted in 1787 and amended since. The cognitive dissonance of living under these two constitutional regimes is thus causing friction across society. And he's absolutely right. This is the fundamental philosophical difference between the Democrat leftists and constitutional conservatives. In just two months in office, Joe Biden signed 37 executive orders. How many of us are even aware of the substance of these orders? You can find the text of all executive orders at the Federal Register online, and we need to be informed citizens Are you even aware of what your state governor is doing? You need to be. This isn't as simple as party-line support. We have to be constitutionalists and citizens who understand what it means in context to be a government of the people, by the people, and for the people. We the people have rights. Our government doesn't. In order to maintain the separation of powers and a government functioning by consent of the people rather than sovereign prerogative, we have to reject the overreach of the executive through education, legislation, and especially our vote.
1: CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car.
0: To continue this conversation on executive orders and the executive branch's overreach and how we as American citizens need to fight back is the general counsel and uh, executive director of the new Civil Liberties Alliance, Mark Chenoweth. Thanks so much for joining me.
2: Thanks for having me today. Great to be with you.
0: Absolutely. So uh, for the average person who probably is looking at this in the headlines and politicizing uh, everything, because, you know, we tend to look at this uh, as Americans, as, If the Biden administration is doing it and we're Democrat, then that's totally fine. And if the Trump administration or some other Republican administration does it and we're Republican, then that's fine. But that's not really the constitutional divide. So um, in your words, explain uh, the difference of how we need to be looking at executive branches, authority and the limitations.
2: Sure. So the president has the obligation to take care that the law be faithfully executed. It's... uh... Article two of the constitution has the take care clause. And one of the ways that presidents do this is to use executive orders, or it can be less formal than that. It can be an informal instruction from the president down to someone uh, lower in the executive branch. No one thinks the president has time to run the entire executive branch by himself, of course. Uh, the problem is when these executive actions or executive orders are used to shortcut the legislative process, and when they start becoming legislative actions rather than executive actions, that's a problem. Or if they start to try to uh, bind the conduct of people outside of the executive branch, then that's a problem. So if it's just the president telling his subordinates what to do, that's one thing. If it's the president telling his subordinates to do something to third parties outside the government, that's a that's a much uh, bigger problem if there isn't statutory authority uh, for the the actions that he's asking them to do.
0: So that gets into a conversation about the non-delegation doctrine. And uh, so that's, you know, for those people who aren't constitutional attorneys, uh, explain that and what your organization is doing uh, to fight that specifically.
2: Sure. So Article 1, Section 1 of the Constitution, right at the very beginning, is the Vesting Clause is what it's called. And the Vesting Clause says that all legislative power is vested in a Congress of the United States. And so what that means, and then article one goes on to specify what the limited powers of the federal government are. and it gives those powers uh, to Congress, most of them in in article one in the legislative branch. And so uh, in uh, to the legislative branch there. And the the reason why why the vesting clause uh, is important is because Congress cannot give away that legislative power that it has. It can't delegate, the reason it's called the non-delegation doctrine. Congress can't delegate its power, its legislative power to uh, the executive branch. And when it does so, that violates Article 1, Section 1 of the Constitution. Or if the executive branch just takes that power because there isn't any statutory authority uh, for what it's doing, Congress never, for example, passed a law allowing uh, the executive branch to do that, that also uh, is a violation of the Constitution.
0: And so, even when uh, the when Congress would, for example, grant some limited authority and they do legislatively delegate, um, is there a difference or how has the court parsed uh, the rise of the administrative state in that way when Congress has essentially ceded their authority to the executive branch?
2: Well, the courts have been pretty reticent to do anything about it for uh, about uh, seventy five years now. unfortunately, uh, if you you know if you go back to uh, when, Ah, uh, former President William Howard Taft was the Chief Justice of the U.S. Supreme Court. He people may not realize he was the Chief Justice after being President of the United States, the only only person who did that. Uh, he was obviously had a, a very thorough understanding of presidential power uh, of the executive branch, and under his leadership, uh, the Supreme Court actually uh, checked executive power uh, somewhat, and and there were uh, efforts to to enforce the Vesting Clause. Uh, but sometime in the 1940s, we really got away from that, uh, away from, from enforcing uh, the vesting clause against the executive branch, and something called the intelligibility principle uh, or intelligible principle uh, doctrine got started. And essentially what the courts have said is as long as a piece of legislation has some intelligible principle in it that allows the uh, executive to understand what Congress wanted, that's enough. Well, the, the problem with that is, it could be that, that Congress is giving away too much power there, and there's nothing in that intelligible principle that has the teeth to stop the executive branch from, from taking too much power or stop Congress uh, from giving away uh, too much power. So what's exciting about today's Supreme Court is they've talked about potentially revisiting and reinvigorating the non-delegation doctrine, putting some, either putting some teeth into this uh, intelligible principle idea or maybe coming up with a different test for whether or not the vesting clause has been violated.
0: Yeah, and this is something that uh, Justice Gorsuch in particular has been a strong advocate for. Uh, I know a lot of conservatives when he was initially nominated uh, by President Trump were very excited about uh, to see that, you know, he took this really hard line on the rise of the administrative state. And so uh, looking at that uh, as well, just uh, for, for people who aren't as familiar with a lot of these principles and the delegations, we really have two separate operative constitutions in society and that's what the heritage foundation article was getting at uh, which is that operationally we have all of these executive orders we have all of these court orders that aren't necessarily uh, the original text of the constitution and so what can we do um, either legislatively functionally or through litigation to try to roll that back into the original intent of the vesting clause
2: well, Congress should take back more power from the executive branch and Congress has the ability to do that. Although one of the tricky things about giving away congressional power is once you've given it away, it is hard to get get it back and that's one of the reasons why I think that calling it delegation or calling it the non-delegation doctrine is a little bit misleading. Usually when you delegate power, uh, you know, if you think of a manager delegating power to an assistant manager, uh, they can get that back by themselves, unilaterally, without the assistant manager's agreement, right? So that's what a delegation should be. But if Congress passes a law giving power to the executive branch, the only way to get that back is to pass a new law that the president has to sign, or you have to get both uh, two thirds of the House and the Senate uh, to override a presidential veto. Well, we know how difficult that is uh, to do. So if you can't get the president to agree to give up some power that Congress has given him, Uh, then it's going to be very hard to get that back. So I think it it really shouldn't be thought of as delegating power. It should be thought of as divesting uh, legislative power from the legislative branch uh, to the executive branch. In in terms of of what we can do if if Congress doesn't try to... Well, Congress needs to stop giving away legislative power. uh, But what else can we do? We can can, uh, bring lawsuits. This is something that the new Civil Liberties Alliance does. Bring lawsuits in the federal court uh, to try to get the courts to recognize... Uh, some of the problems that have been created. So for example, we have a lawsuit going uh, against the CFPB, the Financial Protection Bureau, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. Uh, and our concern with the CFPB is the way that it is funded. It gets funded directly from the Federal Reserve and not through congressional appropriations. And last summer, the Supreme Court struck down one part of the CFPB saying that the director needed to be someone who could be fired by the president, was not someone who could have tenure protection in that role. So now the CFPB has all this funding, hundreds of millions of dollars of funding, under the direct control of the president, and the Congressional Appropriations Committees have no control over it. Congress has no control over the CFPB. Uh, It's really a runaway uh, independent agency. Uh, Less independent now because the president can fire the, the director, but it's this this funding problem is really a core funding is a, appropriations is a core congressional power that they've given away in the case of the CFPB. So our lawsuit is trying to get courts to recognize uh, that that needs to be reined in. That's one example.
0: That's, that's a great example. And, you know, when we look at uh, Congress delegating, or as you, as you rightly said, we should call this divesting, uh, and I think that's an important difference. Uh, why hasn't a more conservative Congress, for example, when Republicans controlled uh, both the House and the Senate and also the White House, um, why, ha- in your opinion, has this not been brought forward by either party? I mean, is it just something that functionally Congress isn't paying attention?
2: Well, I think it's tricky because if the Republicans are in control, for example, of the House and the Senate, but not the White House, uh, then they're not going to uh, necessarily be able to take back the power because a Democrat president isn't going to want to share power with a Republican Congress. Uh, And if you have a Republican House and Senate and a Republican president, a lot of times they're more interested in giving more power to the president or cooperating, working with the president uh, to try to achieve some of their policy goals rather than use that opportunity to cut back uh, on executive power. Uh, I, I do think we saw maybe more progress in the last four years than we've seen uh, in, you know, at least since I've been paying attention, uh, because we did see some efforts at a type of deregulation that limited federal power. So for example, in the, the area of regulations, uh, the uh, President Trump uh, issued an executive order. And so that I guess maybe they're not all terrible, but he issued an executive order Uh, directing his agencies to not enforce guidance against anyone. So you have sort of standard regulations that go through the standard regulatory process, notice and comment rulemaking. But then you also have these little uh, pieces of guidance that don't necessarily go through notice and comment. And sometimes agencies use that as a shortcut. They try to bind people with that. They try to enforce that guidance against people. Or if people don't follow the guidance, they'll bring enforcement actions against them on other on other uh, offenses that that the agency uh, may, uh, uh, or or not offenses, but other uh, uh, compliance obligations that that the agency wants to to enforce against those folks. And what the Trump administration said is you can't use guidance as an enforcement mechanism because guidance isn't binding. And the Department of Justice said the same thing in the last administration. Uh, Because guidance is not binding, DOJ will not bring enforcement actions against anyone based on a violation of guidance. It has to be a violation of a statute or a violation of a rule that has gone through uh, the standard process. So that was a huge benefit from a civil liberties standpoint uh, to uh, to all of regulated industry, but any Americans who who face federal regulation uh, to know that they don't have to worry about enforcement actions based on guidance, which is often very hard to find in the federal code. Uh, Well, it's not in the federal code. That's why it's hard to find.
0: Yeah, and you know, Mark, this is such an incredibly important conversation, and one of those things that I really wish during uh, the 2020 election, for example. I mean, this isn't an issue that maybe gets as many headlines or you know is as sexy as some of the things that uh, we typically tend to talk about in election cycles. But this is one of the things that President Trump really did to bring power back to the people, to our elected representatives, and that's one of the the main reasons that so many people who actually understood the design of the Constitution really loved about President Trump and love about genuinely conservative leaders. So we're gonna be right back with more of Just The Truth and continue the conversation with Mark.
1: Okay, picture this, it's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road.
0: Welcome back to Just the Truth. And we're continuing the conversation with Mark Chenoweth, who is the Executive Director and General Counsel of the NCLA. You can find them at nclalegal.org, the new Civil Liberties Alliance. So, Mark, we're talking about this conversation of executive overreach. And so in this segment, I want to get a little more uh, practical in terms of the examples, um, some great things that your organization is doing. And uh, first, some examples of the Biden administration. Uh, Today is exactly two months into the administration. And we already have um, at least 37 formalized executive orders. We have even more executive actions than that. Uh, what, in your opinion, are the most egregious examples of of the federal overreach of the Biden administration?
2: So, you know, it, it depends what you care the most about. If you care about jobs, then it may be uh, the the executive action to uh, to stop the Keystone pipeline, which uh, you know, which I, I think was. Uh, was going to be a, a real a job creator uh, over the long term. Uh, if, uh, if you're talking about the, 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 the rights of American citizens, and that's something you care about, then maybe it's this travel ban, the Biden travel ban, which people aren't calling it that. Uh, but the Biden administration has said, and I should, uh, full disclosure, this is left over from the tail end uh, of the Trump administration, but it's been continued by the Biden administration. They're not allowing American citizens to return to the United States unless you have a negative COVID test. But some of the places where Americans have traveled are places where they may not have COVID testing uh, available or not available at, at a reasonable uh, cost. And so you're you're telling American citizens that they cannot return to the United States. Now, if, if they had these tests available at the local embassy or consulate, uh, and it was just a matter of making a quick trip before you go to the airport, that might be one thing. But that's not what we're hearing is happening uh, in these cases. So you're seeing... Uh, violations there. Uh, One of the most uh, concerning things I've heard about, and this hasn't happened yet, so maybe it won't, but what we're hearing is uh, there was a a rule at the Department of Transportation uh, during the Trump administration that said that if there's an enforcement action against you, that the Department of Transportation would turn over what's called exculpatory evidence. Now, that's not a word you hear every day, but essentially it means if the agency has any evidence that shows that you are not guilty of what they are uh, trying to come after you for, they have to share that evidence with you. And that's something that is standard practice in criminal trials in the United States. Uh, at the federal level, it's called your constitutional Brady obligation. Uh, and it's something uh, that uh, uh, that the Trump administration, the Department of Transportation in particular, was working into the administrative enforcement area as well. And we're told uh, that the Biden administration is planning to pull back and eliminate this requirement uh, for sharing exculpatory evidence. Now, why would they not want to share evidence with you uh, of your innocence if that's in their possession? The government should be about seeking the truth, about only enforcing the law against lawbreakers, and there should be no problem with sharing uh, exculpatory evidence uh, with folks. So that's the kind of thing that the NCLA uh, would look at uh, suing uh, the federal government over if it were to try to pull back this constitutional uh, right uh, to uh, exculpatory evidence. Uh, evidence, uh, for example.
0: Yeah. And so uh, you mentioned uh, earlier in the other segment that uh, you're excited at least about the composition of the Supreme Court right now, which in and of itself, I think is, uh, it it just shows how much we've politicized even the judicial branch to be concerned with the opinions and the policy positions of justices. But we have to be uh, because we want to make sure that their understanding and their view of the U.S. Constitution is in keeping with the correct separation of powers of just one of many issues that the Supreme Court has to opine on and decide on. And so as uh, the NCLA is litigating, I mean, we're only two months in the Biden administration, but um, what are some other things uh, that you've seen in terms of your litigation uh, success? And also, do you think that the federal courts um, on the lower court level are seeing that there's probably a difference in the composition of the court and are maybe uh, changing their attitude towards some of this uh, because they don't want to be overturned at the Supreme Court?
2: I hope that's the case. So, uh, you know, as you note, the administration is rather young, so there aren't a ton of lawsuits going yet. Uh, and I should mention too that NCLA is a is a nonpartisan organization, in addition to being a nonprofit organization. And so we had lots of lawsuits against the Trump administration as well for places where we thought that they had fallen short uh, in in the in following the the Constitution. Uh, but one of the places that we are we have an ongoing lawsuit. Uh, now against the Biden administration, again, started against the Trump administration, is against the the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, the CDC, uh, which uh, issued last September a nationwide moratorium against evictions. And the problem with that, uh, and again, we don't have a policy position on the wisdom of eviction moratorium or so forth. It's just that there is no federal statute. Congress has never given the CDC the power uh, to do this. Uh, The CDC does not control housing policy. That's not their role in even the federal government. And for the CDC to issue this this nationwide eviction moratorium without statutory authority, we think is a tremendous violation uh, of civil liberties uh, of of housing providers uh, in this case. And so we have a lawsuit going against them. In fact, we have filed a new lawsuit today against the Biden administration, a class action lawsuit against the Biden administration. Uh, and the CDC over the same issue. But we also have a case that's still pending in the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals uh, on on the same issue uh, as well. So we're trying to come at it from as many angles as we can uh, to uh, to make sure that the Centers for Disease Control is, again, respects the limits, the statutory limits and the constitutional limits on its power. The CDC should not be preventing state landlord tenant courts from operating, which is what it's been doing uh, since last September.
0: I love that you mentioned that uh, as a constitutional organization, as someone who is legislatively trying to make sure that we're enforcing the rule of law in our country, uh, that this is also the Trump administration, the Biden administration. This isn't just about partisan uh, party politics, because typically, uh, if people are in favor of Trump or they're in favor of Biden, they think that these types of lawsuits are necessarily good or bad depending on their politics. But what you're pointing out is very important, I think, for viewers to recognize that the executive branch has been overreaching for years and years and years before any of the current administrations. And so to roll back those things, litigation uh, is one of the best tools that we have available to do this. So I commend your organization for doing that. And that also um, gets into the area of, uh, for example, sanctuary city policy. Because um, when we talk about the overreach of the executive branch, it's not just on the federal level, it's on the state level as well. And so is your organization involved in any of those uh, litigation efforts?
2: Uh, we have not been involved in, in that particular area, but I'm very well aware of the Biden executive order uh, that uh, that changed something that the Trump administration had done. They had uh, an order in place to prevent sanctuary cities from qualifying qualifying for certain kinds of uh, federal aid dollars. And that policy has now been switched. And so the, the taps have been turned on again for federal money going to these cities that are actively working against federal immigration law by putting themselves out there as as sanctuary cities. Uh, So that just goes to show you the power of of the federal government. We also see lots of places uh, where the the Solicitor General's office, that's the the, the top litigating uh, office in the Department of Justice, has switched the government's position in several cases uh, coming from the old administration into the new uh, administration. And I just want to say NCLA has not switched our position in litigation. We've been consistent uh, against the violations of the Constitution, whether they were being done by the last administration or by this administration. But we don't see that same consistency uh, coming from the Department of Justice.
0: That's really fascinating. And as constitutional conservatives, we should all always be on the side of the U.S. Constitution, the correct delegation of authority uh, within the separation of powers in the Constitution, and should be consistent regardless of who is in power and what administration and party. That's absolutely correct. And I think for a lot of people, we tend to only view this through the lens of partisan politics and through the headlines that we see. We don't actually analyze the root issue, which is, can this particular government actor or branch or agency actually do what it's trying to accomplish, and is that something that is constitutional or not? That's a question that should be black and white, but it's often shaded by colors of politics. And so, um, in the last couple minutes that we have with you, uh, Mark Chenoweth from NCLA, um, I also want to talk to you about um, the litigation that you have ongoing for International Women's Day and uh, Biden issuing the executive order on guaranteeing educational environment free from discrimination on the basis of sex, including sexual orientation and gender identity. So this was one that I know um, that court opinion that came from what should have been a conservative court uh, was really frustrating to a lot of conservatives who know that this was an overreach completely.
2: Yeah, we had two concerns. Our main concern was that, uh, that when Congress passed, the, uh, passed Title VII um, and, and there is this, I think the issue you're talking about is Justice Gorsuch and the way that he interpreted uh, Title VII. Uh, But the issue that we have right now is that the current administration has taken the decision in the Bostock case, which was limited to Title VII, and through executive order has tried to apply that holding throughout the government to say that uh, whether you're uh, schools receiving federal funding or whether you're uh, the Department of Labor or whatever other departments of government uh, are involved, that you also have to follow this ruling. Well, it was a statutory ruling that's limited to the Title VII employment discrimination context. It didn't reach all these other areas. And that's just not the way Supreme Court decisions work. You don't get to take one decision, uh, and then as the president say, oh, well, this settles this whole question for all time. It was a narrow decision, and they're they're trying to make more of it than uh, than there was. Uh, so that's you know that's one one concern, particularly in the Title IX area. We we have litigation going in this area as well because what you saw in the Obama administration, again, this gets back to guidance, is our dear colleague letter went out from the Department of Education uh, to hundreds of colleges and universities, telling them that they are not allowed to offer due process to people who are charged uh, with sexual harassment or uh, other violations of Title IX. And uh, as a result, these colleges and universities have lowered the standard of proof. They've prohibited uh, the uh, defendants from learning the charges against them. They've prevented them from cross-examining witnesses. They've prevented them from offering witnesses in their own defense. All the things that you just, just read the Bill of Rights and you can see the kinds of things that you should have In the way of due process. This is such an overreach.
0: Absolutely. And uh, Mark Chenoweth, we're going to have to leave it there. There's so much more that we could talk about about the executive overreach. And I hope that people will go to nclalegal.org, find out more about the work of the new uh, American Civil Liberties Alliance, and make sure that you help their organization.
1: Okay, picture this it's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you.
0: Welcome back to Just the Truth, and I'm joined now by John Solomon, who's the editor-in-chief of Just the News. So, John, uh, there was actually a ruling, speaking of executive overreach, which has been the theme of the show, uh, there was a ruling from the Michigan uh, court, the federal court, uh, that talked about the election integrity issue. This is one of three, so we're seeing that courts are starting to recognize the same thing we had been talking about Uh, from November 3rd.
3: Four months after the president said, President Trump said, I think there were some irregularities in this election. Some of the courts are beginning to agree, and Michigan is the latest one. The chief judge of the Court of Claims, it's a statewide court, has agreed that uh, the Secretary of State, Benson, did not follow Michigan law when she gave guidance on how to interpret signatures on ballots. And so what she told clerks is, err on the side of counting anything unless you really think the signature's way off. The legislature never gave her that authority. She would have to promulgate a rule under uh, Michigan law Put it through a process and commenting process and get it vetted before she could order such a thing that didn't happen so the court of claim said that instruction was unlawful and therefore the way signatures were counted may have been inappropriate that's that's a big ruling in a state where you know uh, the president competed very well won in 2016 lost in 2020.
0: and by a pretty narrow margin Narrow margin. Well, so. on,
3: on all these races and let's go to one that's even more narrow: wisconsin right yes the wisconsin supreme court the highest court in the state just a couple of months ago ruled uh, that Governor Evers and his Wisconsin Election Commission had no right to tell voters that they could claim during COVID that they were permanently homebound, whether they had a disability or not, and they could avoid the voter ID rules in uh, fell out absentee ballots without providing an ID. The Supreme Court was unequivocal. Why is that significant? There are 200,000 votes uh, that were voted that way without the voter ID claiming they were homebound in a state where the election was cited by 20,000 votes. So these things are beginning to happen in Virginia. There was a consent decree about absentee ballots there as well. So increasingly, the courts are looking at the rules that Democrats, these are all Democrat states, in post saying, listen, they weren't authorized by the legislature, they weren't done by the rules, therefore, some of the things that happened in this election were unlawful, inappropriate. And I think you're gonna see that trend uh, continue through the summer. There are some pending cases with our friend Phil Klein at the Amistad Project there are more pending cases where that issue can come to bear, uh, and I think we're, we're, we're going to see more.
0: And I think the American people are really frustrated because the timeline of this now, it seems like too little, too late. But we said at the very outset of this that the really narrow time frame was going to be critical to the outcome, at least before January 20th, because now constitutionally, uh, the only way that a now President Joe Biden can be removed is through impeachment and that whole process. Right. And so we had a very, very narrow time frame, all of us who were election integrity advocates, of course, you know, myself on the Trump uh, legal team- to right. litigate these issues, and the frustration I have was with the state legislators who saw all of this, they saw the evidence, they saw uh, the number of ballots that this affected, and weren't willing to reclaim the delegation of their authority and right. say, "Hey, this violated the law." So, um, so as we're seeing this, uh, and we see election integrity uh, issues come up, um, are there is there anything else pending that you're waiting to see from the courts?
3: So I think uh, more than the courts, there are a couple other a couple lawsuits winding their way through. There's some more election challenges. that have come through, another one in Wisconsin is working its way through. we got to see what happens with the audits that are underway in Arizona and Georgia, both approved by judges, so the courts are likely to supervise those. I think the biggest uh, issue, if you're a conservative, you're a Republican, about what we learned in 2020, is will the Republican National Committee, will the state legislatures change their mindset? Because what the courts have said is, If you're so concerned, you should have brought it to us before the election. (laughs) Don't expect us to come after the election and make the votes disappear. It's not a position the court wants to be in. So the Republican National Committee must do more. If they hear about a problem, they ought to go in preemptively and try to do it. Ken Paxton gave us a model in Texas, right? In Texas, there were several efforts to try to get the courts to change the rules or to get local election officials, and the AG just repeatedly went in and said, hey, hey, I'm the AG. This doesn't follow the law. We're not doing it. And he won almost all of those cases. I think that's where you see the Republicans now. They're all talking among themselves. How do we become preemptive? How do we get ahead of this? How do we reclaim the rules? How do we reset the rules from all the changes that were made in 2020? That's how Republicans are going to get a fairer, better election in 2022. But uh, it's not clear to me that the RNC has that mindset yet. It is clear that some legislatures and some legislators are on offense for the first time having learned their lesson in 2020.
0: Yeah, and in fact, in the next segment, I'll be talking with um, Mark Fincham. I did an interview with him previously, who is in, uh, of course, Arizona Arizona. in that uh, that hearing, who is still fighting the good fight for election integrity. But John, you continue to make uh, this argument, and I think you're right on this, that uh, the election really was set months before November 3rd. And it really frustrated me personally, and I'll share my opinion on this, and I have for a lot, that the RNC wasn't willing to do more and mount those challenges because yeah. President Trump was very clear that this was something that was unconstitutional and it was going to lead to massive, massive chaos, which is exactly what we saw in the election. Yeah. And that's really been your position.
3: Well, listen, the most amazing document to read, if you want to know how did 2020 happen the way it did, all you have to do is read David Pluff's book, A Citizen's Guide to Defeating Donald Trump. Barack Obama's former chief architect of politics writes a book saying, here is how Democrats can win the election. We're going to Get out the vote in a large way in urban areas, and the way we're going to do it is we're going to loosen the rules, make absentee ballots, try to lessen signature verification. He put the whole playbook out there, and someone at the RNC must not have read the book. They should get on Amazon buy the book, because they're going to do it in 2022 if they don't pay attention. Uh, that, when you talk to people who now know what they've gone through, this is what they say. David Pluff put it out and open, and we were asleep with the switch. I don't think that's going to happen in 2022. I see a lot of activity. I know there are committees inside the RNC studying each aspect of the failures in this election, meaning the RNC's failures, trying to, to get things better. We'll have to watch and see what happens. Uh, but, you know, the roadmap's there. The Democrats are going to try to run the same election strategy. Hey, it worked in 2020. We're going to run it again. So right. It stops working. I think Republicans have to get on their side if they want they got to stop complaining there's a, going on offense is the surest way to protect your election interest. And I think this time around in 2022, they're going to be a lot more loaded for bear than last time.
0: Yeah. And I hope that people will recognize that this isn't just about being frustrated over the 2020 election. Of course, I share those frustrations. Absolutely. Sure. But it's making sure that we correct all of these things before 2022 and not just complaining about it and looking backwards, but looking forward to saying, what didn't we accomplish? What were the, the violation of the rules and making sure that we can change this moving forward for yeah. free and fair elections in the future?
3: Listen, with the exception of Iowa, too, where Nancy Pelosi would like to erase that election and remove a, a duly elected Republican from Congress using the House administration. There's no value because there's no chance that Joe Biden's getting ousted from office because of the election. It's over. Right. Go back, study 2020, and then learn from it and try to get the rules that if you're a Republican, you want, if you're a Democrat, you try to get the rules you want. Uh, the Republicans didn't play that game in 2020. I think they're in the, in the game for 2022. We'll have to watch and see. As a reporter, I'm fascinated by it because when a party learns after the fact that I'll a painful lesson they often come back with a, a vengeance. And I, I think that that dynamic is very possible in 2022.
0: I hope so. And, you know, as, as a person who is a member of the Trump campaign, seeing that disconnect right. with the RNC really frustrated me. And I know frustrated a lot of people who were very, um, very solid advocates of President Trump to see the failures of the RNC happening in real time. So I hope that they take that effort. And I think it's incumbent upon American citizens to challenge the RNC yeah. and make sure that they, Demand know they what do what you that. want. There's Absolutely. No well, and in the last just, we have about 40 seconds here, uh, John, but there's one other headline I want you to get yeah. to real quick.
3: Sure. Yeah, this morning, uh, Ahmad Zubari, large bundler for Barack Obama and Joe Biden and Hillary Clinton, millions of dollars. He's admitted he made foreign money, illegal donations. It turns out he had a secret life. He was working for the U.S. intelligence community while doing all those <laughs> crimes that he's now admitted to. A lot of questions. I don't think we know the whole story about Ahmad Zubari but it's becoming a lot more interesting than it was two weeks ago.
0: And you'll get to the bottom of that. So read uh, the stories (laughs) and all of the day's headlines at justthenews.com of John Solomon, best reporter in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back with Mark Fincham on Just The Truth.
1: Okay, picture this, it's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road.
0: Welcome back to Just the Truth. And finally, tonight, we are still talking about election integrity. The left, of course, wants us to completely ignore the fact that there is executive overreach. There was such a violation of the election laws in the states, and they want to ignore this moving forward. We're not going to. I had an opportunity to sit down with Representative Mike Fincham out of Arizona, and I want to play that interview for you now and what's going on in Arizona. Thanks so much for joining me here on Just the Truth.
4: Well, thank you for the invitation, what a joy.
0: Absolutely, so I know that there are so many questions still about what's going on in the swing states. What can you tell us about the fight for election integrity in Arizona?
4: Well, as you very well know, uh, November 30th, we had an exhaustive hearing which launched the uh, the state Senate to issue subpoenas and all the Maricopa County stuff. We're at a point right now where the Senate president is evaluating vendors, uh, tools, and hopefully very soon we will get the forensic audit that we've all been waiting for. Um, But I am told that they are dedicated to moving forward and uh, this is gonna happen.
0: That's really excellent news. And so I think for a lot of Americans who kind of see this maybe as not timely enough, uh, what to you, what is your message to your constituents about why this still matters and why we need to focus on looking forward uh, rather than just backwards to what happened in 2020?
4: Yeah, this is a public policy question. And if, if what we believe has happened, if we have the proof for it, if we have the evidence for it, That means that we have to develop public policy prescriptions to see to it that this doesn't happen again. Um, Everything from ballot integrity to uh, voting systems to all of the things that go along with that. um, These are very important issues because at the end of the day, if we don't have confidence, if our voters don't have confidence in the election process, they're not gonna have confidence that they have given their consent to be governed. And that is the basis for our republic.
0: Absolutely. And so well said. And I'm so thankful that there are uh, legislators like yourself and others in Arizona, um, you know, the few that I met across the country throughout the election integrity effort. Uh, what would you say is the percentage of the people that, and the legislators in Arizona that are actually committed to this effort? Is it bipartisan at this point or where is the fight?
4: Yeah, unfortunately, it is quite partisan. Um, we continue to hear this, this line from uh, House and Senate Democrats, quote, the big lie. Well, the big lie is that our election was safe and secure. And for anybody who has followed this at all, they know that there are questions that really have to be answered for us to see to it that we have free and fair elections. And that's, I think most of my colleagues are dedicated to the concept of free and fair elections to make sure that we have the right policies in place, that we have the right protections in place, so that everyone, not just a few people, but everyone can be confident that their vote matters.
0: Yeah, and this shouldn't be a partisan issue. And this is something that both you and I and a number of other people stress throughout this whole effort, that for a constitutional republic, if we, the people, get to select and prefer our leaders, then we have to rest assured that we have free and fair elections. And transparency matters. But that's what the left is trying to intimidate us into silence. And so, uh, Representative Fincham, I mean, they're even trying to intimidate you and some of your colleagues. And so you've established now this new uh, website, the Fight back network. What is that about, and why is this so incredibly important to the fight?
4: Yeah, so the and fight I back- And I love the back... note there, yeah. Um, it's, it's actually, a part of that is the Guardian Defense Fund. Now, um, you may not know this, I, I'm sure you do, but uh, the left here in Arizona wrote a letter to the Department of Justice and the FBI claiming that I had planned, and somehow I had led, and I had orchestrated the assault on the Capitol from 2,700 miles away. Uh, so it's, the, it's just base political falsehoods. This is malicious. And so now we, we find ourselves in this space where will the FBI take this seriously? I mean, absent any proof whatsoever, all they have to do is look at my cell phone and they'll know exactly where I was at by the minute uh, from January 5th all the way through the 7th. So they'll know that this is, absolutely absurd. But more importantly, the left has gotten to the point where they are trying to weaponize everything. And by that, I mean, they have now started a recall against me based upon absolutely false claims. And we're going to fight back. Uh, they picked on the wrong guy this time.
1: Uh, we've established a guardian
4: Defense Fund so that we can litigate this. They—they they, Not only did they make the report, a false police report under color of authority to the FBI, they immediately turned around and let it out to the news media. Well, if it was a legitimate police report, a request for an inquiry, why did they show malice? Hmm. And in that moment, they showed malice, and they have attacked me mercilessly. So we are now um, raising funds for not only litigation for me, but we, we want to protect uh, Congressman Gosar, um, Anthony Kern, who was one of, a former state representative and who was one of the electors. Uh, we're gonna go after this. We've already filed our first suit. It's not the first, we plan to file many more, but this has got to come to an end. And I think the only way that we can get this to come to an end is for somebody to stand up, push back and just take it right back at them. So far, I don't know what it is about uh, Republicans and conservatives, but we seem to take a lot of punches. Defense was never meant to be a permanent state. So we're gonna go on the offensive with the message and say enough is enough. You're not gonna weaponize our entire society.
0: That's really a great uh, effort there, and I commend you for just standing firm in the truth because words matter, uh, meanings matter, and I see that you have the note right there. So fightback.network is where you can find out uh, more about this. And so uh, Representative Fincham, in just the last couple of seconds that we have here, uh, what is your message to the other state leadership to stand firm in election integrity?
4: I think, so we're, we're seeing 500 to 1 on emails coming into our system. Wow. Election integrity matters to everyone, and we've got to get a, a handle on this.
0: That was Representative Mark Fincham out of Arizona, and we will be following all of the developments in Arizona, as well as any other states on election integrity issues here on Just the Truth. Now, finally, to Just the Word. Isaiah 40, verse 8 says, The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. This is Just the Truth. Join us again every Monday through Friday for Just the Truth.